Bonnie is back for our question and answer episode on this month's show, Managing Up, How to Help Teams Work Better and the Way to Do More Reading. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 515. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Once a month, we open up the episode to questions from you and observations on things we're seeing and learning right now. If you'd like to be considered for a question on a future question and answer episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way to get something to us for consideration. And I am joined uh, this month, as I am almost always for our question and answer shows, by Bonnie Stahoviak. Hello, Bonnie. Hello, Dave. Nice to be back. I am glad to have you back. It has been a couple of months since we actually did a question and answer episode. Time flies. We had so many other interviews and uh, both of us have been crazy busy schedules. But we're back for a few thoughts from our listening audience. And uh, I thought we'd do something a little different this time, Bonnie. Normally, we just respond to questions that have come in. We're going to do a little bit of that today. But one of the other pieces I wanted to bring in is some observations and trends. And I find myself in this really privileged, wonderful place of getting to observe some of the trends that are going on out there in the lives of leaders. And because of our academy cohorts and getting to facilitate and work with so many wonderful leaders on a regular basis, um, I get to see perspectives from leaders all over the globe and in all kinds of different industries. And I often bring those perspectives into conversations with people one-on-one. And of course, our academy sessions are confidential on the individual things we discuss. But I, I do find that I'm referencing trends I'm seeing a lot, and things do tend to come in patterns. And so I thought it might be fun to share some observations that I've seen and for us to talk a little bit about some of the things that are going on right now. And there's two observations that I've had that are coming up as themes with leaders right now in the workplace. And one of the themes that has been coming up a lot in conversations with academy members and clients is the theme of managing up. How do I manage up ideally to get my boss or whoever else in the organization to maybe change their behavior a bit or consider doing something differently? And I was talking, Bonnie, with Tom Henschel actually recently about this. And Tom made the observation, which I thought was really brilliant, that you would think that with everyone working remote right now, that managing up might become a little bit less of an issue, (laughs) that managers wouldn't be as much in people's daily interactions, and that, that if anything, this would maybe be a little bit less of a problem as it is normally. And I got to thinking about that with him, and said, you know, that's really fascinating. I hadn't thought about it that way. I'm seeing the exact opposite trend, though. Uh, Even though that makes sense logically, it seems like I'm getting more and more questions and hearing more and more conversation about how do I manage up? And I thought this would be a good thing for us to discuss because you are really good at this, Bonnie. Uh, you, You are really great at being able to manage organizational politics and manage up. And I'm just curious, if you think about this topic on managing up, 
maybe if you might share some insights of things that have worked for you or just how you approach this when you think about trying to affect change in behavior and other people in the organization. This first thing that I want to share is a little bit awkward <laughs> because I have had a lot of managers over many, many decades of professional work, and they've all been different. But one thing that they all have in common is that at one time or another, I get disappointed in them. And I, I just, I think that's part of our first thing that we have to recognize is that when we report to someone, when we have that relationship with someone, we are going to be disappointed no matter how great of a leader they are. And to me, the greatest thinker on this is Peter Block and always has been for me. And I know I've referenced this book more than any other book, and I'm going to continue to do it because it's so good, but it's called The Empowered Manager positive political skills at work. And that is, again, by Peter Block. And he the whole premise of the book is that too many of us have dependent relationships on the organizations with which we work. And that can also play out, by the way, with somebody that you report to, a real dependent relationship as opposed to the ideal, which would be an inter- dependent relationship. I bring things to the organization or to this person that I report to, and they bring things, the organization brings things back to me. It's interdependent. And he outlines, there's a whole section called finding peace with the boss. And he starts out by saying, we have to acknowledge this disappointment, the one that I just spoke about. And to me, there's kind of this repeating pattern that I've seen in myself throughout my career, and I also see it in others, where we have higher expectations for the person that we report to than we do for anyone else in the organization, and even sometimes than we do for ourselves. And sometimes that can then turn into anger. And he talks about we have to acknowledge the anger we feel, I'm quoting him here, because those above us are not giving us what we want. When they took the job of boss, they also took on an obligation to serve those that work for them. They are in some ways not fulfilling that obligation, and we resent it. Some of us tend to bury the resentment we feel toward those above us. The fear is that if we owned up to the resentment, it would be an act of disloyalty and get us in trouble. This step is to say even to ourselves that we are not only disappointed, but we are angry that our management is not all that we wish it could be. And then the next step he talks about is compassion. So once we've acknowledged that disappointment, that anger, we have to recognize, and I'm using my own words here, this is a person just like anyone else. In fact, sometimes the reasons that they got promoted up into that position are actually antithetical with the ways many of us want to achieve things at work. And so we're hoping that they would somehow, because they got promoted, would somehow be better than the rest of us. And oh, so often that is not the case. And how wonderful too, by the way, because it's actually a really good skill to have as a leader to be able to lead people who are way better than you at so many things. So this is actually as it should be, but we just, our brains don't always process those things. And Peter Block talks a 
lot about seeing people in power realistically. And I found that to be really healthy for me too. When I do start to have those feelings of resentment, when I do start to have those feelings of disappointment to kind of get real with this, this is a person just like me. They have strengths that I don't have. They have weaknesses that I don't have that are hard to process sometimes and being able to see them realistically and then kind of getting in touch with what our role should be. And I have colleagues who are so good peers who are so good at this and starting to really ask a lot of questions around how can we help you? How can we be most helpful to you? And that can allay some of that friction that can sometimes come up when a lot of the time is being spent on that next level up. I love the way you brought in the lessons from Peter Block, and we've had him on the show before, and I'll link up to his episode in the notes, of course, too. And uh, the other piece of this that I was thinking of, Bonnie, is the first step. And I think about oftentimes when this conversation comes up on managing up, the question is, if not explicitly, the, the message behind the question is, how do I get my boss to change their behavior? And I think that's a really hard thing to do in almost every situation. It's hard enough for me to get myself to change my own behavior, much less to get anyone else to change their behavior. And so I think that that's not the way generally to think about this question when it comes up. And I forget how you phrased it, Bonnie, but it got me thinking about one of the lessons I learned at Carnegie was appealing to the nobler motive. Dale Carnegie talks about that in his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, of Get beyond the minutia and appeal to the broader, the nobler motive, the thing that everyone can agree to, the thing that the organization is really there for, the purpose behind it. And I think this is really key when thinking about managing up is rather than the what you did that I don't like or how this is affecting me or how this is affecting maybe just you know my team in this micro moment of what can we do to problem solve to find a better way forward for the benefit of the organization. And I think the way to approach this conversation, if you're going to have it, is from the business case or the organization case and the purpose, the bigger meaning behind it of what are we trying to achieve and what is it possibly something that isn't working. And I mentioned Tom Henschel a moment ago. He had this beautiful episode, which I'll link to in today's notes on his podcast, The Look and Sound of Leadership, on, uh, I think he called it upward feedback, essentially conversation on managing up. And he invites leaders to have what he calls a learning conversation, which is to make an observation about maybe something that isn't working, to bring a suggestion, and then to ask a learning question of the boss that is something you're curious about in order to affect change for the broader motive. And I think if you come to a conversation where you are trying to affect some change, if you come to it from the perspective of, I'm having this conversation because I'm noticing something that isn't working for the organization, for us to reach our mission or our goals or our nobler motive. And here's something I've seen, and here's a suggestion I have. I think that that's a lot more likely to entertain conversation and potentially a bit of a change than it is if you come to that conversation of, here's something I don't like that you're doing, or here's something that, here's the emotions that I'm feeling. And I don't say that to minimize those things, those emotions, that frustration that many of us have in our careers with bosses that are doing something that we don't necessarily like or maybe even agree with sometimes. Those are real. 
Yet that's not the place to enter into the conversation. If we can start the conversation from thinking about the bigger perspective, the business case, and just put those other things in a box for the moment and just set them aside, I think it's much more likely that we're going to be able to at least have a productive conversation about what we might do differently going forward. So if that's you as well, if you're thinking about managing up, I hope that is helpful uh, and thinking about what Bonnie said around Peter Block, I'll, I'll link to that episode too, of course. I hope that's helpful in thinking about how you may frame this and it gives you a starting point for that. And I mentioned, Bonnie, that there's two trends I've been hearing recently. One of them is managing up. The other trend that I've been hearing a lot is teams not behaving well together. And this probably shouldn't be a surprise because the context of how we all work has changed in the last year in many places. A lot of teams are have gone to working remote. In some places, that's not as much the case now, depending on where you are geographically. But even in those places, a lot of the cadence has become, of course, working in different ways, working in virtual environments. And one thing that is coming up a lot in conversations with Academy members is, how do I help teams to work better together? How do I help our team to work better together and to behave well in the workplace and to honor each other and to have good expectations? And that's a real challenge. And again, Bonnie, something I think you're really good at. You're really good at building teams. And over the years, you've really done a fabulous job of putting together wonderful groups of people and then having them perform well. And and I'm I'm curious from you, when you hear about people struggling with this, what would be a starting point or maybe some thinking that a leader might want to consider with a team that may not be performing well or may not be behaving well together? This is one of those questions that we could just spend six months on and just be getting started. <laughs> I first think that it's just absolutely critical to acknowledge the kind of chaos and the kind of devastation that the world is living through right now. And there are some of us, I would include us, you and I, Dave, in this, that are able to buffer ourselves from some of that, that haven't felt the substantial impacts. But there's also there's this whole area of what's called systems thinking, where it's just a constant reminder that you do one small thing over here that can have an effect halfway around the world and you have no idea of because because we tend our brains tend to think in terms of cause and effect. But that's not the way most of the world works. But we still keep wanting to treat it that way. And especially during a global pandemic and some of the other social issues that have been around for much longer than the pandemic, but have really started to show a lot more symptoms visible to some of us that may not have seen them as much prior to the pandemic. I mean, I think that's just the first thing is to recognize that we're all really probably not very likely to be behaving in very good ways because we're in chaos. And so a few thoughts that I have that that may or may not apply to your given team dynamic. One is that because of that chaos, because we're in, you know, at least at the organizations that I work a lot with, we're needing to have a little bit more decisiveness than in the past. So a lot of colleges and universities, for example, decision-making tends to be pretty slow, tends to be, speaking of cause and effect, tends to you know involve a lot of different stakeholders and you can't really see kind of where this thing's ever going to end. During a pandemic, 
decisions need to be made a lot faster. And I'm hearing just over and over and over again, not just in the context of higher education, but really in a lot of industries, the need for quick, decisive decisions that, yeah, are based on some data, but that make the decision. And then if you have to correct after the decision's been made, better to have made a decision, communicated it well, gotten people to understand their role in that that decision or in that change, and then going back and revisiting it if it if it turned out to be the wrong decision or or there's another better option down the road. So a bigger thing is just recognizing you you mentioned on a recent episode, Dave, about Ken Blanchard's situational leadership. Oh yeah. And situational leadership is kind of a model of that you are a lot more hands-on with someone that is new to something and that slowly you reduce your coaching along the way as they gain these skills. Well, some of that goes out the window a little bit when in times of crisis, because you do need to have someone who's in charge, someone who's making the decision and the rest of the people less about questioning those decisions. Because once somebody gets around Ken Blanchard's model, then they are you know, starting to, they become the master at this thing. They can, they can question it, dissect it, you know, start to look at other options because they have that expertise that they've gained throughout that entire coaching model. When you're in an emergency, you kind of need to identify who's going to make the decision, make it fast. And then, like I said, be willing to redirect. So that for many of us, that that hasn't necessarily been our default leadership style. I would way more prefer that other people get to make decisions and that they're more consensual. And I still, I mean, I still think that there are ways to make them more consensual. I'm just seeing seeing such a need right now, a hunger for let's make decisions. Because when you put them off, the consequences are so much worse. So that's one big thing that I'm seeing. Another big thing that I'm seeing is just all of the anxiety, individual and collective, that is coming from this time. And one thing that we can do, and this comes out of a book by William Bridges, William Bridges wrote an incredible book about change called Transitions. I've mentioned it many times on the show in in the past. And then he has another one called Managing Transitions, where he looks at the leader's role, which is specifically what I'm about to refer to. But when he talks about leading transitions, managing transitions, he talks about the need for us to set up temporary systems. So a lot of our systems, they don't work anymore. You mentioned, you know, now we're working remotely and, you know, we're having to do things differently. Too much of what I'm seeing is just allowing that chaos to continue. We need something to kind of pull us together. So even if it's not going to eventually be how we do things, we need these temporary systems to be set up to help us in the in-between time so that we're not all just sitting around going, no one's making decisions. And also, I don't know what our processes look like now because we can't do things the same way that we've always done them. So we really the importance of that those temporary systems, recognizing the anxiety that people are in, and sometimes that anxiety can be relieved with some decisiveness, which seems really counterintuitive from so many of the things that we've learned about leadership and management. But this is a season that's kind of like the, my, my mom has done a lot of work in the past with 
the police, for example, and with military and with their, they have a nonprofit, a search and rescue nonprofit. And so much of what those kinds of organizations are learning is, yes, we've got to be breaking down some of these power def- differentials, making sure that we're hearing from people who are on the, the front lines here, you know, hearing that didn't work or hearing, hey, this is wrong. This is not the way that we're supposed to do these things. That is so crucial in those organizations. But when there's a fire, or in my mom's case, when someone is lost, that's not the time to be dissecting everything and slowing down. And well, what do you think? And how about you over there? I haven't heard from you yet. When we're in times of crisis, it's time to act. And so that's, you know, this is, this is a crisis for most of us. It's time to act. And so just those, those two things together are really coming up a lot for me around teams. I had a conversation last week with a client, Bonnie, and she articulated this problem with her team and people not really working together well. Uh, and in fact, some really problematic behavior happening between some senior people in the organization who all report to her. And she then articulated this beautiful set of expectations for the team and what the team is supposed to do to work together and operating procedures and all of that. And the thing that I noticed as she was articulating that was the pronouns she was using. And the pronouns were all I, my, and me. And as we furthered the conversation and I asked a few curious questions, what we uncovered is that the way that the team would work together was her expectations, how she saw the world and how she thought everyone should behave. And what had not been done was allowing the team some ownership of having created and spoken into those expectations. And having it be more of a we and an us and how we operate together. I'm thinking about what you just said, Bonnie, of the need in many organizations and teams and people looking to leaders for clear direction. And um, I have also seen that a lot in the last 12 months of people lacking that in many organizations. And so I want to draw a distinction between what Bonnie said and what I'm saying here is I'm in full agreement with what Bonnie just said of we need leaders now, especially, to be able to be a little more directive. Uh, in fact, I just aired an episode recently. The message was, you don't have to always be so coach-like, right? I mean, there's a time and a place for being a little bit more directive. And from a team standpoint, it also makes sense to set some time aside now that we've been dealing with a lot of this change for almost a year in many places. And to, if you haven't already, get buy-in from the team and allow the team some opportunity to also own the expectations. So rather than the leader coming from on high and saying, here's what the way we're all going to behave together. Here's the expectations for when we're in a meeting together. Here's how we make decisions together. Yes, the leader has an important voice in that. And the rest of the team also has a voice in that as well. And that should be a transition from it being I, me, and my expectations to the expectations that are about we and us. And I don't know of a better way to get started with that than Susan Gerke, who was on episode 192. That episode gets referenced all the time because we've had many people who have used it over the years to begin the process of really crafting team expectations. And you can do that even with an existing team. It's, it's 
it's obviously most apparent to do it when a team is starting or you're taking on a team for the first time. But if you have an existing team and you haven't done that before, I think it's a wonderful place to start, not only in that episode, but her Go Team program is really fabulous at helping leaders to make that transition from either the leader coming with the expectations or in a lot of cases, there aren't team expectations at all. If you will take some of those first steps, I think it will help you and your team to be able to begin the framework for how we work together. And as I've said on the show before, so much of the root of conflict in any relationship, and especially in organizations, comes from unclear expectations. So if those expectations are clear and it's owned by the team, then it's so much more likely that you'll be able to process things easier and quicker when they happen. And it's also a lot more it, it enables a leader to be more directive at the times that they need to be directive and the context changing. So, so I hope that that's helpful on thinking about how you may approach team expectations. And of course, we'll link to all this uh, below as well, too. So Bonnie, let's, uh, let's tackle a question here. Uh, we do also have a question from Rudolph. Rudolph writes, I want to make reading a greater part of my life, but I'm struggling to find time for it. My question is, do you have any recommendations for how to make the most of my reading, Kindle or book? How do you make time for it? What time of day do you read? Rudolph, thank you for the question. This comes up a lot in conversations with Academy members as well, too, of wanting to get better at reading and being able to benefit from a lot of the knowledge in, in books and podcasts and other resources that you find. So let me I'm going to answer your question, then I'm going to expand it a bit. Kindle or ebook or Audible is a question folks ask a lot. I think this is so much just personal preference and what works for you. Whatever's going to get you reading is great. So if you listen to audiobooks and that is your way to get information in your brain, fabulous. If Kindle works for you, fabulous. Uh, if you love reading paperbacks and sitting in a chair and getting that nice fresh smell of a new book, fabulous, right? Uh, there's so many ways to do it. So for me personally, I use Kindle because I find that just being able to have my iPad and have the Kindle app, I don't use the Kindle device, I use the app on the iPad, just so I don't have multiple devices, um, is really, really nice for convenience. It also allows me to highlight and then do something with those highlights. And I've talked before about using the service Readwise on the show before. Readwise is this wonderful service that integrates with many other services. Kindle is one of them, where it will then take your highlights, database them, and allow you to search for them and surface them back to you later. So I get a daily email from Readwise that then pulls all the highlights I've had from my Kindle over the years, which is a lot of years at this point, and shares five of them each day in my email box that uh, then reminds me of. And those are the ones I share on social media, and some of you have seen those on LinkedIn and Twitter and other places. So I use Kindle because I just find that that is most helpful for me to be able to capture things that I need to reference later. It's also helpful for me on being able to prep interviews because I am capturing highlights, I'm writing notes. And as much as I love listening to audio, I don't find that for me, it's as easy to then capture ideas and highlights. There are ways to do some of that. And the Audible app is better now and you can make bookmarks and you can even jot down notes. But when I've tried doing that in the past, I find that it's just too much legwork to then 
go back and to then find the bookmarks and then copy and paste them. And you still don't really have the highlights technically highlighted. So I use Audible for fun reading. Like if I'm reading a novel or doing something else that isn't necessarily something I'm going to do something with for coaching for leaders, then um, I'll use Audible. But most of the time I'm using Kindle. And when I read is in the evening, most of the time, although I've been rethinking that, Bonnie, like maybe I should block more time during the day because I do find that I struggle with being tired in the evening and only reading a little bit. And as a result, I don't read as much as I'd like to, but that's a to be <laughs> to be determined yet. Uh, it just hasn't worked out to do it during the day as much. One thing I have, I often ask people what they've changed their mind on. And one thing I've definitely changed my mind on in the last six months is how I approach reading and thinking about my tactics toward reading. And I'll I'll share an example. We had Susan Rice on the show about a year ago. She's the former national security advisor under President Obama. And she has this beautiful book about her life and her work. And I read about 75% of the book word for word, and then about 25% of the book that I skimmed. And then I watched a bunch of interviews she had given, and I, I probably put in 10 or 11 hours on prepping for the interview with her. And after the interview, I went back and I looked at some other things in her book, and I realized that I missed a couple of key things that I really would have wanted to ask her about, things that I would have loved to have asked her about in that interview that did not come out. And the reason is because I didn't go to that part of the book first. I sort of started from the beginning and I went chronologically through it. And uh, that, along with a few other recent examples of times that I feel like I've missed things that were really important, has gotten me realizing that I need to approach my reading a little bit more organically and a lot less sequentially. And uh, so what I've started to do is dive in at books at different places. So I'll almost always read the introduction and then the first chapter. And then I've started to skip ahead. And prepping for interviews, I'll often go and look at the table of contents, and I'll spend more time now going and finding other interviews people have done. I will find YouTube videos. I'll find TED Talks. I'll find what they've written. And then I'll go into the book, and then I'll start sometimes from chapter one, and then I'll go read chapter seven and read chapter nine. And sometimes I'll read a lot more, and sometimes I won't. But I'm really trying to look at my reading as what am I curious about and what really captures my attention? And I also have stopped tracking my reading in order to drive that habit. So I used to keep really close track on everything I'd read. I put it up on Goodreads. Some of you are connected with me on Goodreads. And if I started a book, I almost always would try to finish it. And if I didn't finish it, I felt like I was somehow had failed. <laughs> and I've kind of come to the conclusion that like life is too short to finish books that are mediocre. And so I've just gotten to this place of like, hey, if I only read two chapters of a book, that's fine. And if I'm reading six or seven books at a time and jumping around to what I feel like I want to read, that's great. And I'm I'm not approaching things anymore from a, I have a certain goal of what to read each year or how many books I'm going to read or how many that I technically finished. And after making that shift in the last year, I've actually done, I know I've done more reading this past year than I had done in prior years, just because I'm doing it now because I'm following the joy in it. 
I'm looking for the ideas, I'm finding the things that are useful, and I don't feel the obligation to have to finish things if they're, if it's not useful or interesting to me, especially nonfiction. And so that's how I've been approaching reading. And I've found that it's been much more joyful. I think I'm doing a better job prepping for interviews. You all can write in and tell me <laughs> if I am. But I that's really helped me just to get more out of learning because it's not really how much how many page numbers you read. It's about the approach to it. So anyway, that that's where I'm at right now with reading. How about you, Bonnie? Where are you at? What I really honed in on on what Rudolph wrote was how do we make the most of our reading? And that is such an important question. And I hope that you're wrestling with it yourself because it can really change how it is that you might approach it. So for me, how do I make the most out of my reading? I do use Goodreads. I still am using, I know Dave, you've kind of backed away from it. To me, I am a more goal-oriented person in general. And so I have I have set out that 24 books a year is just about right for me. That's approximately one book every two weeks. I have to stretch sometimes of the year to get there. I have to really hone in and decide that it's important to me to check the box. And I have been able to check that box in, I think, all the years since I set that goal. But some years I just barely make it. But sometimes I have that, there's this expression called FOMO, fear of missing out. I have friends who read a book every week. I have friends, like Katie Linder reads like 90 books a year. I don't, I don't understand how a person does that, but I need to not, because if I became so goal oriented about the quantity, in my case, I know I would lose some of the benefits around the quality. So I do think setting a goal is good, but it's got to be a goal based on yourself. What's important to you? What is something that's doable that's a little bit of a stretch for you, but not so ridiculous that you know in advance you're never going to get there? Also think about part of your goal can be based on having a conversation with others. Now, Dave mentioned getting to interview Susan Rice. Most of us, myself very much included, aren't going to ever get an opportunity to speak with someone like that. But what about colleagues? What about friends who have shared interest? And I know when Dave and I have been parts of book clubs in the past, and I think Dave, you still are part of a book club, that it really does take on another level of your reading. So that can be another great way to set a goal and be able to achieve it knowing that you're going to have that conversation with other people and not wanting to let them and yourself down by not actually doing the reading. And of course, I also having a podcast, I do read a fair amount of books that I get through. I mean, they're, by the way, I interview incredible writers, but sometimes it's just, I got to finish this before I interview them. You know, that's really important to me. And so some of that can be kind of more of a transactional goal, but hey, whatever it takes, whatever's going to work with the way that your personality is and what motivates you. And sometimes for me, it's just, you got to get it done. So having it down, I do this in my task manager sometime. This is the date by which I want to have it read. And so what are my milestones? going to be along the way. And so I don't I don't typically do per chapter in a book, but I'll, a lot of the books I read have parts. They might have five parts. And so I'll just to kind of track where I am along that to make sure I'm not cramming it, you know, the night before the interview is going to happen or anything like that. Mm-hmm. 
If this conversation was helpful for you, several related episodes I'd also recommend. One of them is episode 192, How to Create Team Guidelines with Susan Gerke. I mentioned that earlier in our conversation. It's one of the most listened to episodes we've had. And the reason is because so many leaders recognize the importance of establishing team guidelines, and yet very few leaders actually do it in practice. And one of the stopping points is because we don't know how. Most of us never learned how to do that. In episode 192, Susan and I talk about the step-by-step process that you can take as a leader, not only the preparation, but the actual establishing team guidelines, and then what to do beyond that. It's a very useful episode, whether you're beginning with a new team, establishing a team for the first time, or perhaps recognizing the opportunity to get better guidelines with an existing team. Episode 192 is where to go for that. I'd also recommend episode 328, How to Deal with Opponents and Adversaries. Peter Block was my guest on that episode. Bonnie mentioned his work earlier. And in that conversation, we talked about how to navigate organizational politics and specifically two groups that he identifies as opponents and adversaries. Those are different groups. And he makes that distinction in that conversation. And more importantly, the how to navigate around that and to be productive in your relationships. All of us handle organizational politics. The question is, what do we do with it in order to influence change effectively and to be able to help the organization move forward? Episode 328 is a good framework for how to do that. Also, I mentioned Tom Henschel earlier. We did an episode about a year ago, episode 433, on how to start managing up That is a very helpful conversation for you if you find yourself in the situation of, I'd really like to try to influence behavior change a bit. Uh, You heard a bit about that today, but a lot more detail in episode 433, also a very popular, uh, highly downloaded episode. And I'd recommend along with that episode, Tom's own podcast, The Look and Sound of Leadership, specifically the episode he aired about uh, six, seven months ago on giving upward feedback, a very useful framework, three key steps on how to do that well. They both fit together beautifully. And then finally, episode 456, How to Be Diplomatic. I mentioned my conversation with Susan Rice uh, earlier in this episode. Uh, That was when I had her on and we talked about some of the ways in her career that she's worked to be more diplomatic. That's episode 456. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you have not yet set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, I'm inviting you to do so because the trends that I'm hearing about today may not be the thing that you are thinking about or the thing that you're struggling with. And that's why we have done a ton of work at coachingforleaders.com to make the website and the free membership portal as useful to you as possible. And that's why once you set up your free membership, you can go in and search by topic for exactly what you're looking for. All the free audio courses are also listed there. My entire listening library and library of database articles, if you're looking for resources for your team or a credibility piece for a client, all of those are there as well as the member casts and plus access to my weekly leadership guide every Wednesday. All of that's completely free. You can get access to everything in just a few moments by going over to coachingforleaders.com and setting up your free membership, and you'll be off and running with us on all of that. Next Monday, I'm glad to welcome Ethan Cross to the show. He's a professor at the University of Michigan. He is going to be teaching us how to find helpful advisors, something that is so important 
for all of us in our careers in building strong networks and relationships and being able to learn from others. Join me for that conversation next week with Ethan. Have a fabulous week and see you on Monday.